Good evening, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I will talk about the Dharma and social action. There's a lot to say. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> I'll get it all said. A couple things. How do we use the Dharma to guide us in our social action? And what does the Dharma say about social action? We might think about the difference between social action and politics or social service. And I think here the lines are blurry. There may not be, at least at times, a big difference. Um, It reminds me a while back, a few years ago, I was having dinner with a Zen teacher. And it must have been around election time because we were talking about politics. And she said, she thought the Buddha would say, Don't go near politics. Don't get involved. Stay away. And I said, oh, I think the Buddha would say, get involved and clean it up. (laughs) So there are many ways to look at social action from a Buddhist perspective. Some people get very involved. Uh, perhaps in Buddhist Peace Fellowship or the International Network for Engaged Buddhists. And other people feel no calling to such a group. I think what's important, at least for tonight, is that we hold a very broad view of social action. Maybe not just what you would immediately think of, a demonstration or a petition or some such, but a very, very broad view of what social action is or can be. And I think it's important that for each of us, we come up with our own definition. We make it our own. This is true about everything in Buddhist practice. Ultimately, we have to make it our own. And I think with social action, that's so true. Because there are any number of things that we can do, any number of possibilities for any one of us, and no need to limit it, I don't think, in any way. In a way, we can't separate Buddhism from social action. The Dalai Lama likes to remind us that Buddhism is a way of life. It's not a dogma. It's not a belief system. It's a way we live our lives. And so from that perspective, there is no difference. We can't separate from social action. We are engaged in social action all the time. Whatever we do is expressing our social action. And so the important thing is that we be conscious, that we act with awareness. So I'm going to talk a bit about Buddhist principles that inform and guide our social action. And perhaps the most important is what I just said, that we be mindful, we be conscious in everything we do. And that's true all the time with Buddhist practice. So sometimes we might be doing something quite small, often perhaps. Something that I do, I have checks that have in the background a picture of a cat and a dog, I think, I can't even remember. And it says at the bottom, stop animal testing. So that's one little action I do. It's very simple. 
But whoever looks at my checks sees that. And sometimes people comment, and of course, sometimes they don't. I use stickers from the many organizations that I support. You know, they send you address labels and stickers, and I put them on envelopes when I mail. So it's, you know, if it's from the Humane Society, there might be a message, or at least it's letting whoever carries that envelope know that this is a supporter of the Humane Society. We may do very large things, like taking part in a demonstration, like Aya Santusica uh, talked about a couple weeks ago. She flew to Washington, D.C. to take part in the largest climate change rally that we have seen. So there's a whole gamut in between. For me, the definition of social action is how we express our compassion, our concern, our caring for the earth, the planet, and all of its inhabitants. And I want to underscore the compassion because it's very important that everything we do be done out of compassion and loving kindness and not out of anger or self-righteousness or retribution. And so often, as you probably know, that's where social action comes from. And if you've been involved in anything, you know how it divides, how it creates enemies, how it sets up a divisiveness and does not accomplish what it sets out to do. So very important when we find, if we find, that there's anger or resentment or ill will, that we stop and don't proceed because that anger will come through. Just like they say, if we're cooking food with anger, the energy of the anger will come out in the food. Same thing, if we're acting and there's anger, ill will, that energy will come out in our action. We can't control it, we can't stop it, actually. So when that arises, better that we just stop and work with or deal with the anger within ourselves before we continue any action. There's nothing worse than being involved in a peace demonstration or a peace march and have people, and I've actually seen this, standing across the street from each other, yelling (laughs) and pointing and creating so much enmity and so much um, non-peace. So better that, that we stop and don't go any farther. So there are many different ways, as I said, to approach social action from a Buddhist perspective. Both the Buddha and Jesus were radical in their time. Although they were quite different, they came from different backgrounds, they had different growing up. Um, The Buddha, of course, from a very wealthy family, a ruling class family, and Jesus from a, you know, working class carpenter family. And they acted differently. I read one author just recently that said the main difference between um, Jesus and Buddha was that Jesus was very socially active and the Buddha was not. And I would challenge that. I don't think that's true. I think they were just very different. 
Jesus may have been more outwardly, you know, he turned over the tables of the money changers. Um, But the Buddha, I believe, was just as radical in his own way, only he did it in a more quiet way. So what did he do? He, first of all, did not allow the caste system, which was very prevalent at his time, in his sangha. He didn't go out and preach against the caste system, but he just did not allow it among his uh, followers. He ordained women, which was very radical at the time. And he put an emphasis on personal responsibility rather than there being another entity um, that controlled us. He suggested that it was our responsibility as individuals. He also brought ethics to the practice of, or the understanding of karma and to our practice. So he was quite radical in his time, but in a very different way. Both teachers taught love and compassion. And both teachers suggested that resentment or punishment or retribution or ill will was not the way to go. Both talked about loving our enemies, turning our cheek, being as compassionate and kind to those we don't like as to those that we love and cherish. Both taught truth. Speaking, teaching, acting with integrity. Thich Nhat Hanh, whom you know, has been very socially active, both before the war in his own country and since then. And you may have read his poem, Call Me By My True Names, in which he talks about, I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the sea pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. And he goes on. But remembering that we have compassion for both, both the victim and the perpetrator. This can be pretty challenging. It's easy often to have compassion for the victim. That's kind of natural. To have compassion and the same compassion to understand I am the pirate as well as the young girl. That can be a challenge for all of us. But that reminder that our compassion Our loving-kindness is for all, not just for those that we like or that we're close to. In Buddhist practice, the end does not justify the means. Every step is a part of our practice. So that means we may set a goal But then each step towards that goal must be done with consciousness and as part of our practice. So it's not okay to say, you know, uh, we want to rectify this injustice or this seeming unfairness or whatever and use unskillful or uncompassionate means to do that. 
And what that means is that sometimes we set the goal, but then we have to let go of the results. Because if we're mindful and careful and compassionate every step, it may not go as quickly as we would like. Sometimes it's quite slow. But the results can be different in the long run. And so, again, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about or has written a book called Peace is Every Step. And he talks about we don't create peace. We are peace. Peace is not out there. Peace is right here. And the way we bring peace to the world is that we are peace and that every action, every step is peaceful. It's very different from how often our culture sees things, but so important that we don't lose sight of each step. And we have a goal, perhaps, but we let go of, um, of reaching it, knowing that every step is meaningful and will lead us there. This is Rethinking Karma, the Dharma of Social Justice. Wisdom guides us to know why there is a problem and to know when and how to take care, to take what kind of action. Mindfulness, compassion, and loving-kindness guide the way we act. These elements also help us practice letting go when the action we take does not produce immediate results or meet our expectations, so that we will not lose our motivation, blame ourselves, or feel like giving up. Instead, we let go of our attachment to the outcome. Sometimes that's hard to do, but again, so important. And we remember that the Buddha suggested that what was most important was our relationship, our relationship with whomever, and not the idea or the belief or the dogma, but the relationship. So for him, uh, basically the Buddha was vegetarian. But if he went to someone's home and they served meat, then he ate it. Because that relationship was most important. And I've been, <clears throat> I actually left a group that I was involved in where relationships were not important or were not top priority. The, the goal, the effort was what was important. And sometimes people treated each other what I thought was terribly. And after saying something a couple of times, um, I decided to leave. And I made it clear why, why I was leaving. Um, I could have stayed, perhaps, and maybe tried to change things or work. But in that particular case, I chose instead to leave because I didn't feel that every step was, was being done with compassion and with care. So... Some of the principles in Buddhist practice that we can use to guide our actions and, um, and we can follow. First are the precepts, the five precepts. We should be following them all the time anyway, but in particular when we're involved in social action. So the first one, of course, is not taking life. Thich Nhat Hanh says, not only should we not take life, but we should prevent others 
from taking life. That's a big challenge. So what do we think of? I think of the death penalty. Clearly, taking life. And how do we as Buddhist practitioners respond to the death penalty? So one thing I have done, Buddhist Peace Fellowship, BPF, usually maintains a presence at San Quentin when there is an execution. And I believe about three times I have gone up, uh, usually late at night, and been a present witness to the execution. Not that we're actually in, but there's always a group that stands outside the gate. And often there are speeches, you know, there are talks that are quite... um, (laughs) Riling, you know, they're very emotional and they get people worked up. And as Buddhist practitioners, we don't do that. We sit or stand quietly and just maintain that presence, which is very, very powerful because, of course, it's noticeable. And we don't get caught up in, in the, um, the rhetoric or the excitement of, of what is happening. Another example, of course, is war. War may be the worst example of taking life. And so how, again, do we as practitioners respond to war or the threat of war? Well, <clears throat> often, as was the case before the war in Iraq, There are huge demonstrations, as there was in San Francisco. And Buddhists, again, were a very noticeable presence, but again, in a very different way. So again, while people gathered at um, City Hall, there were speeches designed, of course, to get people excited and get them riled up. And as Buddhist practitioners, again, part of BPF, we sat on the grass or on cushions or whatever and meditated. Um, I remember the experience of all the words of the speakers just kind of going through me. You know, I heard them, but they just went through me. Not that I was indifferent or didn't care, but I didn't get caught up in them. And then when we started to walk, from City Hall to Dolores Park. We walked quietly, and the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center was leading us. So it was a very definite presence, but again, in a very different way. The second precept, not taking what is not ours or was not what is not offered. And again, we can think of perhaps expanding that and, if possible, preventing others from taking what is not theirs in, of course, a compassionate and gentle way. Or we might speak up if there's a situation where others are stealing or taking what is not theirs, again, with compassion, but sometimes it's very important to speak. And we can expand the thought of, of not taking what is not ours. We may question whether owning or having what someone else is prohibited from obtaining due to the current social political order is a form of theft and a form of violence. Interesting. So that it makes me think of the statistics that the United States has 5% of the world's population and we use 40% of the world's resources. 
we can question, we can ask ourselves, is that a form of thievery, of taking what is not offered? And there are many other examples. Um, Third, wise or skillful speech. Speaking truth and acting with integrity. Often this is a way, this is a place where it's easy to fall down. It's easy to fall into unskillful speech, especially if you're in a group or around people where unskillful speech is being used. It can be quite challenging for us to use wise or nonviolent or skillful speech. But again, that step just as important as any other action that we take. And sexual misconduct. It might be easy for each of us to refrain from sexual misconduct. However, you may have seen, as I have, the program on Channel 9. I can't remember the exact title, something about the blue sky or the big sky where Nicholas Kristof from the New York Times and his wife went to, I believe it was Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam, and documented the, um, the human trafficking, the sex trade, where young girls are sometimes sold by their families um, into prostitution in order for the families to get money or the girls are abducted and uh, brought to the city or brought to the states or brought to somewhere and um, are literally in bondage, literally slaves to, to those that are running the human trafficking um, organization. If it's the same title as the book, it's Half the Sky. What is it? Half the Sky. Half the sky. Thank you. Yes, it is. Very important work. And it was done very skillfully without, um, you know, being journalists, um, without a lot of rhetoric, but just factually telling the story of these young women. And intoxicants. Being careful with our use of intoxicants or avoiding them altogether, as Thich Nhat Hanh suggests. Another principle is that of ahimsa, non-harming. This, of course, was what Gandhi was so well known for. Non-violent, non-harming social action. We can be sure that we look at all of our actions, each of our actions, and ask ourselves, is this going to be harmful? Is this going to lead to more suffering? Or is this going to lead away from suffering, away from harm? Is this action going to be polarizing? Is it going to be divisive? Is it going to set up enemies? Or is it going to hopefully lead to peace? And granted, we can't always control what it leads to, but we certainly can keep that in mind and do our best not to do action that is going to lead to divisiveness or harm. Is this action aggressive or not? and keeping away from the aggression. The principle of generosity. It's said that generosity is our greatest gift. So we look at our actions. Are we being generous? Are we acting generously? Or are we acting out of self-interest alone? Nothing wrong with acting out of self-interest if it also is in the interest of others. The Buddha never told us to eliminate ourselves or to act against ourselves. But we must include others 
as well. There was a song John Denver used to sing that I very much liked. And he said, there's nothing that I want that I don't want for everyone. And I think this is so important to keep in mind, that we're acting for the betterment, for the best of everyone, including ourselves. Right now, I'm reading a book that's truly inspiring. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's called Kisses from Katie. um, It says it's a New York Times bestseller. My daughter lent it to me, and she was concerned that I might not like it because it's very heavy on Jesus talk and God talk. Very heavy. (laughs) But what I find, for me, it could just as well be a Buddhist book. And what I do is just transpose. Or I don't even have to transpose. I just think what she's saying, how she's acting, how she's responding, is so Buddhist. Only for her, it's God. It's a very young woman, right out of high school, that goes to Uganda and works with, first of all, in an orphanage, and then just expands. Talk about generosity. It's incredible. She just keeps working with more and more children, uh, many of whom, of course, have been orphaned because of the AIDS crisis. Extreme poverty. This is a young woman that came from a wealthy family in Tennessee, was, you know, cheerleader, class president, a prom queen, the whole thing, and went to Uganda and fell in love with the country and the people. And it is the most inspiring thing I have read in a long, long time. As far as I can tell, totally selfless. I mean, she does these incredible things, but it's not about Katie. It's, there's very little of Katie in it. It's about the kids and about their lives and about healing and cleaning and teaching them and giving to them. And she has adopted, I think at the point I am at, either 11 or 13 children, And I think my daughter said she ultimately adopts 14. Adopts. Legally adopts. These, no, 14. 14, yes, yes. And she just gives and gives and gives and gives until you can't imagine that she can give anymore and then she gives some more. Totally, as I say, it seems totally selfless, which is the ideal, right? that we respond to the need in front of us with as much selflessness as we can. So that leads me to suggest that service is an act of social action. Maybe, perhaps, the highest social action. Another principle, inclusiveness, is what we're doing inclusive or is it exclusive? And remembering that we want to work for the benefit of all. We want to be inclusive, not exclusive. And it makes me think of Gil, who does his best to be totally inclusive at IMC and wants everyone that comes through the door to feel welcome. So he does not allow much talk or any talk about politics. (laughs) Um, And yet I know Gil very well. I know that he's just as concerned about social action as any of us are. Um, But he wants to maintain, well, his belief is that Buddhism, Buddhist practice, is the best way 
to heal the injustices of the world and that if all people are made to feel welcome at IMC, then they will be changed, their hearts will be opened, their hearts will be changed by um, learning the Buddha's teachings. And although it can be frustrating for me and for others sometimes when we'd like to say more, (laughs) we'd like to speak out, a couple times I have tried to present something and he says no. (laughs) Darn. (laughs) But I totally respect um, what he's doing. The idea of being inclusive and not allowing ourselves, which can easily happen in Buddhist circles because I've been there, (laughs) where we make the assumption that we all think the same way, that we all feel the same way, that we all vote the same way, (laughs) and we all have the same ideas, and of course it's not true. And if we do that, if we speak that way or act that way, then there are going to be people that are not going to feel comfortable, that are not going to return. And we don't want that to happen. Working for the benefit of all, I have been involved for many years in a group called Healthcare for All. You may or may not have heard of it, which is a group that works tirelessly to get health care for all people, not just those that can afford it, not just those that are documented, but for everyone. Everyone. Our feeling is that health care is a human right, not a privilege. Buddhism, we remember, is very democratic. There's no need in our practice for us to impose anything on anyone. And we try to maintain the big picture, to see as much of whatever is happening as we can and hold that bigger picture in mind, not lose sight of, again, the compassion for everyone involved. It reminds me of a story I heard once of a woman who had worked with abused children, abusive families, and she committed to herself that she would never, ever allow abuse to happen if she could prevent it. So one time she was in an airport and there was a mother who was obviously very, very frustrated with her young child and speaking and behaving abusively. And this woman, keeping in mind compassion for the mother as well as the child, went up to her and said something like, you look like you are so tired and so frustrated. Let me take your child for a while and you sit down and rest. And so in that simple action, she broke what was happening with the mom and the child, but in a way that supported the mom as well as the child and didn't make the mom feel bad or feel that, that she was doing something wrong. I I keep that example in my mind as a way of remembering compassion for all, for both sides of any issue. Another principle that's so important is that we know ourselves, that we know our own biases, our own shadow, our own shortcomings. We all have them. We all have biases. We can't help it. What's important is that we know that so that we're not run by them, so that we act consciously and with awareness um, that I have this bias or this way of seeing things. So we become very self-aware and then we forget ourselves so that we act selflessly. But in order to do that, we have to know ourselves where. 
we have to be quite aware of who we are and how we act, how we think, and how we might fall into traps. So, there are many ways to act in support of social justice or social action, and knowing when and where and how to act is perhaps our biggest challenge. We have to know when to act and when not to, when to be fierce and when not to be. And I had a wonderful story from Gill's book, A Monastery Within, (laughs) that I don't have time, unfortunately, to read, but underscores. It's the story of a deer and a tiger, and a time that um, a deer is injured and lying down, and a tiger approaches, and a monk is sure that the tiger is going to eat the deer, but he does not. Instead, he stands guard for a couple days while the deer recovers. And so the monk observing this thinks, oh, yes, to accept things just as they are, that's that's the way, that's what we must do all the time. But then the monk sees a nearby hermitage on fire, and he doesn't do anything. He says, oh, yes. I accept that this hermitage is on fire. And the hermitage is burning, and the monk accepts it's burning, and it burns to the ground, and he accepts that it burns to the ground. And the abbess comes out and sees the hermitage and says to the monk, What are you doing? Why did you not help put out the fire? I was accepting things just as they are. And she told him to leave, get out of here, and don't come back until you know how to be fierce. That's that's a rough (laughs) summary of the story, but you get the point. The idea is that we must know when to be gentle and accepting and when to be fierce. And when the hermitage is on fire, we must be fierce. We must put out the fire. We can do it in a very accepting way. But accepting does not mean indifference or not doing anything. That's often misunderstood, and it's an important point. Just a couple more things. I've talked about the importance of our presence, a meditative presence or just a quiet presence. Talked about rhetoric and um, our speech. I I want to suggest that sometimes the most valuable social action is just helping those near us, our neighbors, those in a particular group. doesn't have to be anything huge, but again, just responding to the need when it's there and we see it. This is as much social action as as taking part in a march or signing a petition or whatever else. For me, taking care of our pets and taking care of all pets, being aware of the mistreatment of animals, such as the poaching, you know, taking elephants for their tusks, for the ivory, or taking animals to be involved in the exotic animal trade, you know, so somebody can have an exotic pet. For many years now, I have not gone to circuses that have animal acts after learning how these animals are treated. Um, it's abusive, you know, it's not okay. So I have written letters to Ringling Brothers, and I don't go to any circus that has animals. And there are very fun circuses that don't have animals. 
I do my best not to use products that have been animal tested. So being aware of these kinds of things and doing our best not to support something that is harmful or unfair. Taking care of our parents and all elderly. This is probably true for many of us at about this age. I have a 93-year-old mother um, that is declining. She has dementia. And I don't physically take care of her because she's in a, uh, an assisted living situation. But I visit her two or three times a week and take my dog and talk with all of the residents there. And um, they all love my dog. It's, it's really fun because they'll all be saying, Coco, come here, come here, Coco, come here, come here. So Coco gets plenty of attention, plenty of love, but it's good for them too. They love having a dog come and visit. And Coco is very mellow and very gentle and I can leave her off leash and she just, you know, goes um, around and visits everybody. Sometimes, um, well, we have two volunteers right now, that, or three, that go weekly to visit people at Hopkins Manor, which is the assisted living facility just one door down from IMC. And it's a challenging thing to go and visit people that are aging, that um, many of whom have dementia, not all, but many, um, it's not the most exciting, perhaps, or it's not what many people find it possible to do. But these volunteers are so dedicated and so wonderful. And the elderly need our support, need our, um, our advocacy in so many ways, in so many places. So... David Loy, who is a Buddhist activist, says, Today, the primary challenge for socially engaged Buddhists is the individual and collective craving for power, which destroys whatever it touches. And one last reading. Buddhism calls for a revolution in living and our relationship with the world around us, especially in the realm of political power and political economy. Non-reflection on the nature of political power and political decisions in which everyone is involved leaves the ordinary person as a passive supporter of the status quo. Political elites depend on the lack of opposition to their exercise of power to commit immoral acts. An understanding of the inherent indivisibility of all things and the moral eightfold path requires the Buddhist practitioner to also be a political revolutionary. Important that we don't turn our backs, that ignorance is not an excuse. Ignorance in the sense of turning away from, not being willing to know, because it can be painful, it can be difficult. It may challenge us to change our ways, as this paragraph suggests. It may challenge us to look at our lives and life around us in new ways. So I just want to say one other thing, and that is about the situation in Burma or Myanmar right now. I don't know if you've heard it on the news. There's terrible fighting in, I don't remember what section, but apparently a very rural section of the country where uh, as a Muslim friend of mine said, it's tribalism at its worst. 
I really appreciated that because apparently it's a Buddhist majority, a Muslim minority, and what I hear is that the Buddhists are attacking, Buddhist monks are killing um, these Muslims. It's, you know, probably centuries older, many, many years old. Um, Nevertheless, it's inexcusable. It's not okay as Buddhists to be committing such violence. And uh, I understand that Bhikkhu Bodhi has made a statement about this. I can't find it. (laughs) I don't know where it is. I've asked two people and they know that he did it, but they don't know where. Um, There is a statement from the International Network of Engaged Buddhists that can be found at Alan Sanake's um, website called uh, Clearview Project that pretty much just says that, that violence is not okay and, um, and acknowledging um, the suffering of both sides and compassion for both sides, um, but at least acknowledging that uh, that this kind of violence is not the Buddhist way and is not okay. So I've gone a few minutes over. I'm sorry, there's not time for more discussion. Um, I would have liked that. But uh, I'll be around for a little bit. If anybody has questions or comments, I'd be happy to talk to you. And thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.